pads. That was their first go-to. Should have gone to the farmer's market. They had, a, <laughs> they had all the old school bedpans. <laughs> <laughs> gotta go to some thrift stores. Moldy Mary's got a whole closet full. <laughs> That's where she's Come been growing on, this mold. That's where she was yeah. keeping the cantaloupe. Yeah. <laughs> some more mold. <laughs> Apoptosis is going mad, my liver's gonna fail Maybe it's from the radium I use to paint my nails Well say you hate me, carbon date me, throw me in the sea I'll be back with time because I'm made of stardust and chemistry A stardust and chemistry So, hello and welcome to Cowboy Chemistry, where we talk about the wilder days of chemistry. My name is Dylan Gardner, my pronouns are they, them. I'm a PhD candidate at chemistry in uh, ten at Texas Tech. My guest today is Chris Hobart. Um, he's a pharmacist and a local comedian. Hello. Uh, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Yeah. Been hectic. We just started the semester, so... <laughs> yep, yep. We're full swing. Football's about to... Uh, well, it's already started, so... Mm-hmm. Yeah, we got that, and uh, lots of chemistry. <laughs> yeah. I actually have to tailgate this year um, for, like, a chemistry club, and I'm like, I've never been to a tailgate in my life. I how, how do I tailgate? I didn't know the chemistry club tailgated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the graduate cool. club does. I don't know about the undergrads. Oh, okay, okay. Um, yeah, the grad grad students need an excuse to, like, leave their holes to yes, go yeah. interact with people. <laughs> it has to be scheduled, or else they're staying <laughs> in the lab. Yeah. Yep. But yeah, so this is a chemistry podcast. How much chemistry would you say you know as a pharmacist? I uh, imagine a lot. Yeah, I knew a lot when I was in school. I took a lot of tests. Uh, <laughs> I remember infectious disease had a, that was a really tough one. We did a whole semester of that, and uh, that was a really tough class. That was kind of the weed out class for pharmacy school because you, uh, I remember we just did one lecture on uh, syphilis, and then that was it. And so like a whole test, like, you could do like a whole semester on style, the like syphilis stuff. And that was, I remember it was one lecture, mm-hmm. very long. They ran through it and then on to, uh, I think, uh, HPV the next day. I was like, well, this is going very fast. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So uh, it was all in there. It was a really tough one. So I probably have basic general knowledge now. Um, I definitely had some more in depth. One thing that uh, when I did take that course with Dr. Miller at uh, Texas Tech Pharmacy School said, no one can graduate pharmacy school without knowing the mechanism of action of penicillin. And uh, <laughs> I remember that class, he was just beating your head about the peptidoglycans, like it's going to destroy the cell wall synthesis. And he just <laughs> kept doing it. And he's like, you're not getting out of here without knowing. And I passed the test. So I got out. Uh, <laughs> so I knew a lot at one point uh, uh, when you're actually practicing out there, you don't really go too deep into the chemistry. It's a lot of like background knowledge, like, well, we're already treating it with, you know, this mechanism. So mm-hmm. we're going to use a different class or something like that. Or, oh, you have an allergy. We're going to get out of that class or something. Right. That, that's kind of more the knowledge I, I use on a daily basis. Uh, so uh, that's kind of where my knowledge level's at. Got you. Well, we're not going to go into the mechanism of action very much. We're going to talk, I was going to talk about a little bit about how penicillin works just because like, I don't know, that seems like a good question, but more yeah. of this is about like the discovery of penicillin and all the drama around it. Um, much more fun. Yeah. <laughs> much more fun. Um, cause yeah, I imagine 
Yeah, because, I mean, in this story, too, I was, like, looking it up and reading about it, and they're, like, a lot of the books talk a lot about patent law, and I was like, I don't think anybody cares about patent law. Why did you uh, write a 200-page book about your patent battles? <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow, that's a lot of pages on a, yeah. Is yeah. it a battle at that point? Well, I don't know. That's a, it's a war, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know. That's a, that's way too long. Was it um, Fleming that wrote that? No, or? no. Um, so Fleming was actually against the patenting of penicillin. So, yeah. no. I, I don't know how much he fought it because, like, he wasn't exactly involved as much in the mass production. So he discovered penicillin, like, the mold and the molecule. And then some other people, like, made the mass production. And so they were patenting their, their method of production. And he was against that because... But he didn't really have a uh, say in it exactly. You know? That wasn't his part either, right? I guess those other two guys that did a lot of the... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. but the guy who wrote the book is... Um, his name is Sheenan, I think. Yeah, I'm not going to read it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but his name is John C. She- uh, Sheehan. Um I think how you say it. And he wrote a book called The Enchanted Ring that's about penicillin. <laughs> the Enchanted Ring. Oh, the beta lactam. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'll be honest. It's a lot of name dropping. He's like, when I was working in so and so's lab in 1945. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <The> glory days. <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, we've established, you know, a lot about penicillin. So, but I wanted to talk about first, you know, what it was like before we had any antibiotics, right? You know, um, people would die of simple infections all the time. Mm-hmm. And, like, the first widely available antibiotic was a class of compounds called sulf- uh, sulfonamides or sulfa drugs, um, which I think they're still in use, but, like, more limited now, right? Yeah, usually the ones that I see are a Bactrim, which has, um, um, that's kind of the more common one. It has, there's a few other ones. And I guess they use it a lot. Um, I guess uh, it's interesting that uh, some people can't eat seafood because they have a sulfa allergy. Um, mm. It's uh, sulfa is like the number one, uh, maybe with, with penicillin, but with some of the more uh, um, popularly uh, uh, allergic mm-hmm. <laughs> drugs that you know we got to watch out for. So whenever we're you know doing penicillin, amoxicillin, or Bactrim, we always check allergy list and stuff like that. Everybody, it just happens, unfortunately. But you know they uh, mm-hmm. they treat a lot of fish. Uh, ended up getting a uh, um, some sulfa drugs in them, and uh, yeah, a lot of people uh, can't eat fish because of that. It's kind of oh. random. Yeah, I had no idea. Hmm. But yeah, I knew that that was like part of the problem uh, with sulfa drugs is that so many people have like adverse reactions to them. Mm-hmm. But like, so just to talk about the history of some more. So in 1932, it was when sulfonamides, um, or mis- more specifically Prontosil, was um, developed by German chemist at Bayer. So our old mm-hmm. good buddies, Bayer. <laughs> um, We've talked about them before on the podcast. Um, but the two people specifically were Joseph Clarer and Fritz um, Mit, uh, Meitsch. I don't know how to say that. <laughs> the drug is related to um, azo dyes, which we did many episodes about dyes uh, and dye companies. Um, the work was a project to see if dyes would work as antibiotics. So there was a whole uh, program in Germany to see if these dyes would also work as antibiotics. The drug was then tested in mice by um, Gerhard uh, Dog, uh, Domgak, I believe is how you say his name, who subsequently uh, received the Nobel Prize in 1939 in medicine for that. But uh, Domak was forced to, by the Nazi regime, to refuse the prize. 
<laughs> so, uh, and he was arrested by the Gestapo and detained for a week because he had won the Nobel Prize. Wow. I know, that's a crime in Nazi. Wow. Yeah. So what happened was there I was... knew Nazis were bad, but that is just... <laughs> <laughs> I think there's worse crimes than winning the Nobel Prize. <laughs> that's pretty bad. Yeah, so like a lot, what happened basically, and why the Nazis were so critical of the Nobel Prize was that um, there was a Nazi critical, um, I believe he was like a, a journalist, Karl von uh, Oskevi, won the, no the Nobel Peace Prize in 1935, um, and he was very anti Nazi. And so the German government resulted, you know, didn't like that and result any German national see why, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But any German national was not permitted to accept the Nobel Prize at uh. all. Um and so after the war in nineteen forty seven, um Domak was actually finally able to accept his Nobel Prize, but because it had been so many years, he didn't get the money. He didn't get the oh, money portion of man. the prize. Missing the best part. <laughs> yeah. But at least he got it, got the credit because yeah. Yeah. So, but how that must suck. Cause like when you, the Nobel prize money is like, like a million dollars. Like it's a lot of money. Yeah. Um, that big dynamite money. <laughs> yeah. But sulfa drugs at first were met with a lot of skepticism at first. Um, because, but yeah, anyway, they became popular because they actually were used to treat, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt Jr. So the son mm. of president Roosevelt, mm. um, in 1936, Dozens of medicinal chemistry teams set out to improve Prontil, and it had strong protection actions against infection caused by Streptococci, um, including blood infections, childbed fever, so like if a woman got an infection after giving childbirth. And then another word that I can't say, but it's a skin infection. So, however, it did not seem to have antibacterial effects in a test tube. So like if they put it in like, you know, just, like, the bacteria and then the drug in a, in a in a thing. It just didn't... Nothing happened. And so soon they realized the compound was, like, a pro-drug. Um, and uh, so, gotcha, like, yeah. what exactly is a pro-drug? So a pro-drug is when your body actually activates it. So mm -hmm. uh, hydrocodone is one that I'm familiar with being like that. So basically... The compound by itself doesn't do anything, but it gets converted into the active metabolite whenever you're, it passes through your liver, which usually when you take something orally, mm -hmm. uh, first pass metabolism is going to be through the liver and it's going to create the drug basically. So okay. I'm going to cleave it off, I guess. Mm -hmm. It's kind of different for different ones, but that's the general idea. Okay. I thought like a lot of drugs were kind of like this too, right? Because like basically mm -hmm. your liver metabolizes it, but mm -hmm. however form it is outside your body is more stable. Mm -hmm. And then when you take it, I know. And then sometimes that's part of how side effects work too, right? Like they, they get metabolized. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, basically there can be some, uh, uh yeah, some metabolites you don't want to stick around. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes when you take, uh, certain drugs together, they're mm -hmm. both eliminated or me metabolized through either one, um, through the same mechanism. A lot of times it's in the liver. Mm -hmm. There's these, uh, CYP450 enzymes in there, usually the culprits and you only have so many. And, uh, if they've already, uh, done the metabolizing for one drug and the next one comes like, we're not ready. And, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, they don't, you have too many of the, uh, the bad metabolites left and, uh, it's hard to get rid of them. And yeah, that's how a lot of the side effects happen. Most of the drug drug interactions that we see are, um, kind of from that. Gotcha. Yeah, and is that like why some drugs together like hurt your liver too? Because they is that like all the metabolites build up there or? Yeah, your liver uh, basically is going to run out of the the CYP4. They basically get like all bound up, and you don't mm -hmm. have any left to get rid of the the bad ones. The alcohol, I can't remember the whole uh, 
chain reaction there, but with uh, with alcohol, that's kind of what happens. Your liver gets overrun with it, mm-hmm. and uh, basically the bad metabolites stick around, and they cause all the damage. So gotcha. uh, that's what happens kind of with that one, and it can happen when you just mix two drugs you didn't know interacted like that, too. So mm-hmm. that's why pharmacists are important to check those things and kind of stick with one pharmacy so you right. can uh, avoid those interactions. Your pharmacist can see what you got. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because there's no, like, universal thing that shows all the pharmacies and who's getting what. I know that's, like, part of the problem because, like, people can go get the same prescription filled at multiple places if you have multiple people prescribing things too, right? Yep, yep. A lot of people in price is the biggest issue in pharmacy right now. I work at an independent, so I really try and get people the best price, but sometimes my price isn't the best. And Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's always going to be fair, but... Honestly, I can't match some prices like at Walmart, some of those four dollar plan stuff. I can't right. match it. You know, it cost me like six dollars to even get the meds. So mm-hmm. um, you know, it's and there's people that'll shop around, use like the good RX cards, which I don't like. They're a scam. Uh oh they, really? Yeah, yeah. So they're also run by the the major drug companies. What they do, if I were to run it at my pharmacy, it would charge me six dollars to run it. Like I would have to pay good RX six dollars. Mm. And then it just lowers the price of the drug to whatever random thing. So um, it'll give you a price on like their website. Um, but the thing is, it's the way they work is they are specific to an NDC or national drug code of a drug. Mm-hmm. So let's say it's penicillin uh, or PINVK. So penicillin has multiple manufacturers of it. So it may say, oh, it's uh, $10 on GoodRx, but mm-hmm. that's for a specific one that it's tied to. It's kind of the way the, the um, software works. So basically it's tied to that NDC. Mm-hmm. If I'm carrying a different manufacturer of it, the price is going to be way different. And there's no way every pharmacy is going to carry this one, you know, single NDC of it. So when you go, the price is basically not guaranteed. Right. Unless that pharmacy is going to order the specific one that GoodRx has the best contract with. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's like a Taro, Major, uh, Perigo. There's a bunch of just, you know, generic manufacturers. Um, So they all make most of the drugs. And, you know, if it's Taro they want and everyone has, uh, you know, Perigo, then it's right. So. Uh, anyways, that's, yeah, GoodRx is not, uh, not that reliable. It does work sometimes, um, but I would recommend everyone go to an independent pharmacy and just ask for a discount at the best price. And yeah, we're always happy to help. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cause I know like, especially like ADHD medication is yes. really expensive. And so, yes. um, my husband has on, I forget which one it is, but he's mm-hmm. on one of the ADHD medicines mm-hmm. and he had to shop around because it was like $300 and he doesn't have insurance. And oh, yeah, yeah. So, um, but I think they ended up switching it around and he got some better deal on a generic, I guess. I don't know. But. Yeah, yeah. I know Vyvanse is um, just basically, that's been marketed as the uh, um, non-addictive one. It really mm. just, it's non, non-abuse, non I guess, not non-addictive. They're all, it's a C2. Right. But it's got some... Uh, uh, formulation in it that it's, you can't snort it and things like that. So mm. those are, and it's a Liz Dex- dexamphetamine. So it's a different salt of, uh, amphetamine salts, which is, you know, Adderall Ritalin, right. um, or Adderall, not Ritalin. Um, but, um, yeah, if you just get like extended release Adderall, it's going to be pretty close. So most people, if you don't have insurance, it's very tough. Cause, uh, yeah, those drug prices get wild, especially for mm-hmm. things that don't have a generic, even some generics can get pretty pricey, but um, brand names, they, uh, uh, they're they sold at one price, yeah. and it's always high. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, it's because uh, they still have a patent on it, right? Correct, yeah. yeah. So they've been able to extend those patents and do other things. I know a lot of drug companies, um, what they'll do is they'll make like a new formulation and mm-hmm. just uh, 
add like some delayed release mechanism or some other um, liquid formulation stuff mm-hmm. like that. Like, uh, I guess yeah, there's there's tons of stuff that they'll do to just maybe basically extend that patent and say, hey, if they were doing on this, you know, it's about to go generic. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, we want everyone to be on this new one that we got. It's better. <laughs> so right. they'll wait right until that ex- patent's about to expire, send the drug reps out, get the new one, and mm-hmm. yeah, promote it. So that's the business. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's that's um, big pharma, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's kind of, I mean, the big one that I, I know they keep doing that with, and it, it makes me angry every time is, is um, uh, what is it? For diabetes, the name of it is escaping oh, is my it mind. Lantus or um, yeah, Lantus, but it, Clargene, it's um, uh, Basiglar. The insulin, but, yeah, but it's, yeah. it's the forms of insulin. They keep yeah, making yeah. new forms and new forms of insulin. Oh gosh, yeah, there's a new one every week, and it's crazy how they the formularies work. That's where the real like crime is. I feel mm. so. There's a when I process a prescription um, through insurance, about eighty five percent of all prescription claims I do mm-hmm. are through one of three companies, either Optum. Uh, Express Scripts or uh, CVS Caremark. Okay. And those are the three big companies and mm-hmm. they all own healthcare companies like CVS owns Aetna. They, like the, they own CVS Caremark, which is commercial insurance. And they use what's called the, the PBM, which is a pharmacy benefit manager. And they're the hidden middlemen that have been driving prices up in pharmacy for years and years. So mm. uh, yeah, in order to get on. So let's say you are the maker of uh, Lantus or one of the insulins and you want to be on uh, Optum's formulary. You mm-hmm. have to go to their PBM and say, Hey, I want to be on your formulary. And they're gonna be like, well, we got this other generic that we're going to put on there. Can you give me, um, if we put you on there, every time we sell your drug, you need to give me uh, 50% of the cost or 60% of the cost. Mm. So in order to get on the formulary, you're giving a big percent to this PBM for the privilege of being on the formulary, which will boost your sales because they have so much market share. So right. it's in their best interest to do that. So in order to do that, they do that. But in order to get their profits up, since they're giving a percentage, the price just keeps going up and up and up. And they've been playing that game for 20, 30 years now. So that's why it that's just why it keeps just going up instead of down. Because, yeah. uh, you know, um, raw material uh, materials can be harder to get. Um, factories can be closed and shut down. You know, Puerto Rico um, got hit by a hurricane a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, a lot of eye drops were manufactured there. And yeah. we, uh, since they're made sterile, you can't really just pop up a sterile uh, mm-hmm. compounding lab that easily. It's very tough. There's a lot of uh, um, paperwork, a lot of, uh, you know, checks and balances that have to go into to making something like that. So it's not a fast process by any means. Um, yeah, because they were so, making yeah. all the IV saline bags too, mm-hmm. right? Because yeah, that's yeah. why we had that. IV bag yeah, shortage all, too. Yep, yep. All around kind of the same time. They kind of hit a different. So, I mean, there was a lot of it kind of out there at different vendors. Um, mm-hmm. But once those started running out, I mean, there was no more coming because, you know, most of the production was stopped. So, uh, yeah, it's tough when stuff like that happens. Hmm. That's pharmacy. <laughs> <laughs> That's my world. That's I know a lot more about that than probably most of the chemistry i did at one point but now since this is my job it's kind of like i have to i feel like i spend more time at the pharmacy explaining to people why their copay changed or why uh this costs as much than um geez even the drugs i love talking about drugs that's my my passion is talking about that and counseling people on them and and how they work and making sure that they get a good experience from it and Mm -hmm. the drug actually helps instead of hurting people because oh it's terrible when someone goes back i had a bad experience i didn't like like, "Ah, yeah i sold that i don't uh, what could i have done to prevent that it's like well you know we do our counseling and talk to people and hit the main points. I mean, most people are going to 
know what to watch for, prevent stuff. I mean, there's some stuff you're just allergic. I mean, it's, I'm sorry. Right. Yeah. There's nothing you can do there yeah, yeah, until, I, until they take it. Like if, if I knew that's my fault, but I, you know, right. most of the time you have to find out the hard way, unfortunately. And mm-hmm. uh, some of the other side effects. So if people are warned on them, like, uh, I guess there's like a new weight loss drug out that um, I've been seeing a lot. And I've told people, you know, um, just from, from what patients tell me, you know, uh, it's like a once a week injection. And, mm-hmm. uh, People are uh, doing just more small meals, uh, like five small meals a day, and their stomach doesn't hurt as much. So I've been telling everybody, and people are coming back like, hey, I've lost a ton of weight. And, mm. you know, that that helped because uh, the main thing is if you can tolerate the side effects, and you're going to be good. So uh, right. stuff like that. I love talking about that. But, yeah, with the, the way the uh, big pharma has been rolling, it's like uh, – Everybody, like, why does it cost so much? It's mm-hmm. like, I can tell you, but it's, <laughs> I'll need a whole podcast for that. So right, <laughs> right. back to the penicillin. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I went off on a tangent there. That's a <laughs> no, no. I mean, it's important though. I mean, that that's kind of why yeah. why I like this podcast to a certain degree is talking yeah. about things that like actually matter to people. Because like at the end of the day, nobody really cares. Yeah. Or yeah. it's not going to affect your life to know why penicillin was made or how it was made. Yeah other than just the entertainment of learning the story but like yeah yeah, knowing how how and why your prescription costs what it does is important stuff but yeah we can get back to the history now (laughs) sorry no you're all good i do think it's really full cowboy on that one (laughs) (laughs) all right but um yeah so like you know it's a pro drug like i said Mm -hmm. like you said so it got activated in their in their body and so the actual active drug um was the same thing that had been used in the dye-making industry since 1906. So, as we've been talking about, there was no way to patent it. The patent had already expired. It had already been discovered, just not for this purpose. And people were already making it in mass for these mm-hmm. dye companies. So, a lot less money to be made in Prontosil than other, other drugs. Um, in the ni- late 1930s, uh, hundreds of ban- manufacturers produced tons of sulfa drugs, um, and this lack of, and there was like a lack of testing, right? Because nobody had to test anything to make sure it was safe and pure and those kind of things. Yeah, no FDA, I think, till the fifties. Uh, so yeah, but there was a a disaster called the Elixir Sulfonamide disaster in the fall of 1937, during which at least a hundred people were poisoned by diethylene glycol, um, which found its way into the sulfa drugs. And this led to the passage of the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act in 1938. So that didn't, I don't think that created the FDA, but it was like the first step along Mm. the path to making the FDA. And I believe the basis of this law was just like, what you put in it has to be what's actually in there if you're you're making medication or food or or, uh, cosmetics. Um, Because cosmetics too were, that's a whole other episode too. They were putting all kinds of crap in cosmetics. But yeah, and then so um, there were thousands of these molecules that were sulfonamide structures already known. So by one account, there was 5,400 permutations of a sulfa drug by 1945. So there's just a ton of them yielding improved formulations and greater effectiveness and less toxicity. But sulfa drugs had like really terrible side effects. Um, the medication was relatively safe, but allergic reactions like skin rashes, fever, nausea, vomiting, and mental confusion were, like, common. Like, most people who took sulfa drugs, I guess, got those. Mm-hmm. Uh, the I guess the drug originally had very low solubility and sometimes can crystallize in the kidneys. Is that still... <laughs> I guess that's probably not um, still a problem. Yeah, I would no. hope not. Uh, no, they've uh, got a lot of processes to get the impurities out and... Uh, yeah, with much better drugs. So if a drug's like causing that, like a lot of them, you know, they found these things out 
you know, um, and, uh, yeah, that's when the FDA really was stepping in and cutting mm-hmm. them out of there. So I was like, yeah, this probably isn't safe for everybody to, the, for the general public to be taking. Mm-hmm. Some of them, there's like, uh, the, the FDA has some, uh, they're like RMA or risk mitigation, um, things out where it's like, you know, we know there's a bad side effect from it, but if you want to do it, you just have to follow these steps. Like there's a clozapine's one of them where you have to check certain, uh, neutrophil levels and things like that before mm. you can sell it. And, um, yeah, there's uh, Accutane's one I do a lot mm. of, and uh, you have to uh, make sure they're not pregnant because it will cause birth defects. And mm-hmm. you know, uh, Accutane's for acne. So if you're a female with acne, you know, get rid of acne, looking better. So that's uh, mm-hmm. the government was like, yeah, we're gonna stop, um, yeah, the, those pregnancies. So mm-hmm. you have to take a pregnancy test every single month. So um, oh really? Yeah. So unless you can prove your drug doesn't have like any of those common side, I don't know about the. Um, all the crystallized, but yeah, that's, <laughs> that's some of the stuff the FDA has done to step in and still going on. And, you know, as pharmacists, we have to check those things before we can dispense them. So, um, yeah, a lot of those that have those tough side effects, there's mm-hmm. a, the FDA is like fully aware and they will put a kind of, you know, a, a safety stop in there. Gotcha. So step yeah. So my understanding was, was because of how like the PK, which is like the level of, um, how acidic or basic something is, is, is what a PKA is. Um, and so because it has a PKA around 10, it makes it not, um, very soluble in water. So that's the problem. So that's why it's crystallizing in the kidneys. Mm. But yeah. And so, I mean, at this time, like this is again, the 1930s, so like this is not modern time, but they were just told to drink a lot of water. They're yeah. like, just drink a lot of water. You'll be fine. Um, uh, the alternative is could be dying. So it's like, yeah, it's, it's mm-hmm. fine. Die of a yeah. horrible infection. Crystals yeah. in your kidney. I guess that's the trade-off. Yeah. Oh, uh. gosh, yeah. Kidney stones are no joke. That's a... Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not, yeah, I guess you might want to die. I don't know. <laughs> not really. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so in a lot of the newer in, anal- analogous compounds, they uh, lowered the PKA so that it's a lot more uh, uh, soluble. The, now, the worst reaction people can get is um, what's called a severe cutaneous adverse reaction, a SCARS reaction. And it's like different, le- and p- there's like different levels of this reaction. I-, I looked up some pictures of it, and like in really severe cases, the skin looks like it's like peeling off, like a chemical, it looks like a chemical burn. And according to what I found, it, it uh, about 3% of the general population could have these like SCARS reactions um, yeah. with sulfonamides. Um, and then I saw that patients with HIV have like a 60% chance of this reaction. I don't know if you know why. Uh, I don't. Um, I mean, I assume it has to do with their immune system state, but I, I really don't know if mm. that's, that's why. Yeah, I know in, in pharmacy school, we, uh, we're talking about Stevens-Johnson syndrome a lot, and it's that uh, toxic uh, necrolysis of the skin. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, I've seen some pretty rough pictures of that that can happen. And gosh, I think like every drug you see has kind of got that on the label of uh potential thing which sounds crazy but it's, i guess it's just uh some people can can react that way unfortunately it's mm-hmm. really rare though i'm yeah. i haven't had a single person i'm aware of that you know no maybe tech seen a few cases of it but it, it's really rare uh, mm-hmm. thankfully we don't see it as much anymore but it's essentially a, an allergic reaction right mm-hmm. or uh yeah it's just a reaction to the drug yeah so pretty much yeah. mm. It's not like it normally does that. It's right, it's right. definitely uh, your body's reacting to it in a, a way that, yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> nobody would really want. Yeah. yeah. There's not like a way to uh, prevent it, I guess, or no way to like tell if someone's going to go through this unless they've already gone through it once, I guess, huh? I think there's some genetic testing. Gosh, I, mm-hmm. I, I uh, yeah, I, I'm not 100% sure. Um, 
on that, yeah. Fair enough. Uh, but yeah, people, you know, adverse reactions, so people were looking for a lot better options is basically what I was going to go along with that. So now penicillin was just actually discovered before sulfonamids. So sulfonamids were in the 1930s. Um, penicillin was discovered in 1928 by Scottish bacteriologist uh, Alexander Fleming. First, he was the one who first observed that the colonies of uh, Staphylococcus aureus failed to grow in areas of that was growing mold, a green mold, um, Penicillum notatum. He isolated the mold and grew it in a fluid medium, so a little petri dish with like a gel in it, uh, and found that it produced a substance capable of killing many of the common bacteria that infected humans. Fleming showed that the substance was very potent. Uh, he diluted it 800 times, and he still saw that it killed bacteria. So he even injected it into mice with the compound um, and found no toxic effects. So he, yeah, which, yeah. you know, was the first step in testing if something's yeah, safe. Yeah, always start right? with the mice, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't want to start with yourself there, so yeah. Uh, A lot of people do. Yeah. <laughs> A lot of people are like, ooh, look at this. <laughs> or at least not now, obviously. Yeah. Not now. But um, back in the day, there's a lot of people who were just like, I know this is safe, yeah. and so I'm going to do it. <laughs> that's, uh, that's way too much confidence in <laughs> like a synthesized I know. I compound. I yeah. <laughs> Like mix a bunch of mold together and be like, I know this is going to work. <laughs> that's, uh, yeah. I saw it on a Petri dish. Was, yeah. So at this time, again, sulfa drugs were not a thing yet, so the only thing they had were antiseptics. Um, the biggest one at the time used was phenol, um, which is pretty toxic. I don't think we use that anymore. And if you put it on the wound, it's like really irritating, right? So it's kind of like the same kind of stuff as like isopropyl alcohol or hydrogen peroxide that people still sometimes use to clean wounds today, mm -hmm. which you're not supposed to. <laughs> yeah. Usually um, see like a hypochloric acid or um, Dakin solution is what we usually use for wound cleaning. There's a new one that just came out that, um, as I had a drug rep come out for it, that was supposed to be... The newest uh, wound cleanser one that came out. It started with a V. I can't remember. Mm. I could only order it by the case. And I was like, I don't know if I'm going to order a case. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, usually we don't see that too much. But that yeah, that's, those really sting. Uh, mm -hmm. And the peroxide can bleach. And uh, yeah, there's there's cleaner ways to do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, because it hurts your tissues too, you know. Mm. And anybody who's put hydrogen peroxide knows that it really yeah. hurts. You know, it's not a good, it's not very pleasant. Um a little too clean, you know? <laughs> yeah, a little too clean. Um, but yeah, so Fleming published his results in 1929, and then basically nothing happened for 10 years. He was like, look, guys, yeah. I found this great thing. Uh, and then a few people tried to isolate penicillin, but they were, weren't able to do so. Fleming was like a doctor, and a black, like a medical doctor and a black bacteriologist. He didn't right. really know anything about chemistry. Nobody knew the structure. They were like, I don't, you know, they, did, they didn't know how, so they couldn't synthesize it. And at the time, a lot of scientists actually didn't think antibiotics were going to be feasible for like a really long time because there's no way to manufacture it in large quantities, right? Mm -hmm. So a cure is great, but if you can't make it, yeah, it's kind of useless. Right. Um, it wasn't until the late 1930s um, when Australian pathologist Howard Florey and a British biochemist, uh, Ernst Boring, Boris Chain, both at Oxford University, isolated and purified penicillin. By 1941, an injectable form of the drug was available, and they actually did the first clinical trials, and I think they did the clinical trials with Fleming, like, because Fleming was the medical doctor. The first man that was given penicillin was suffering from two infections, 
um, of strep and staph. After a five-day course of penicillin, his fever was gone and his infections were much improved, but then the supply of penicillin ran out. They literally ran out of the medicine. Five days in. Five days in. (laughs) And then, unfortunately, the the guy's infection had not fully cleared, so then, um, obviously, it came back with a vengeance and he he ended up passing away, unfortunately. Which, that's why you finish your course of antibiotics, right? first case of (laughs) antibiotic resistance in the clinical trial. (laughs) They warned of antibiotic resistance really early. Yeah. Like, they they noticed a lot of strains, like, getting resistant to it early on. Like, in the 1940s, 50s, they were already saying that that was going to be a problem. Yeah, you always got to finish your course, because you never know who's hanging around. I mean, your immune systems are great. They can do a lot, but you got to give them some help. And, Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, obviously, they weren't working that well to begin with if you had the infection that needed antibiotics so mm-hmm. uh yeah give them all the help you can so you can get better so yeah that's one thing we always try and counsel and finish them mm-hmm. take them all that way uh yeah even if well depending on like the side effect reaction but yeah mm-hmm. um generally it's best case uh best course of actions to finish your antibiotics right but yeah then there was a second patient that also passed away um but third time was the charm they treated a 15-year-old boy um, with a strep infection, and they cured him with the penicillin. And then another child was successfully cured um, of blood poisoning or sepsis with penicillin. So that was their clinical trial was kind of four people, which very small sample size. Um, but they were like, this works, basically. Um, years later, in 1945, there was quite the drama about Florian Chain sharing the um, Nobel Prize with Alexander Fleming. Um, so obviously Fleming initially discovered penicillin and then Florian Chain were the ones who managed to purify it enough to do a clinical trial. In fact, a year earlier, Flory had published a summary of the history of, the pen- of penicillin. So he published a paper saying how everything worked. And uh, he stated that the properties of penicillin were discovered in 1940. And that the work of Fleming and the others to isolate and purify penicillin did not contribute to the project. And that was what was called the Oxford interpretation, um, was that Fleming basically discovered the mold and that its application was not considered or explored by Fleming, which quite frankly is just not true. That really like, and it just really made me upset to like read about this too, because um, Fleming was actually a captain in the military during World War One. Yes. He saw many, many people. Um, him and his colleagues, he worked at a battlefield hospital at the, on the Western Front in France. Okay? Uh, he witnessed the death of many soldiers from the results of sepsis resulting from infected wounds. You know, and then he initially, when he discovered this penicillin, he did inject it into mice. Right? So that clearly shows that he was thinking yeah. that this would be a medication. Because why would you inject it into mice? If you weren't intending to use it in in a biological setting like that. Yeah. And he even published, like, work about antiseptics because he used antiseptics to treat wounds. Um, and he observed the that the wounds often got worse when you used antiseptics, especially for, like, really deep injuries because deep wounds tend to shelter anaerobic bacteria. So you use the antiseptic agent. It kills all these healthy cells that are around that would normally, like, protect you, right? Mm-hmm. So you might get the surface bacteria... But then it's removing all the beneficial agents that were produced by the patient's own body. And so they, you know, didn't really do anything except usually hurt the patient. So antiseptics were not helping. He published papers about it. 
but despite publishing his findings, most army physicians over the course of the war continued to use antiseptics. So, like, that's the biggest thing with Fleming, is he posted so many times, like, hey guys, look at this thing, look at this thing I did, look at this cool thing, and then, like, nobody listened to him. <laughs> and then they're, like, saying that he didn't, he didn't consider this, or he didn't come up with it, and it's like, guys, he did. It's just that nobody, <laughs> he's bad at, he's bad at self-promoting. <laughs> But yeah, that, that's, to me, Fleming's fatal, uh, fatal flaw, is that he was, he's just really bad at self-remoting. He needed a drug rep, is what he needed. Mm-hmm. He did. <laughs> Even though he didn't have a drug, <laughs> he just needed a rep of some mm-hmm. kind to go out there and promote him, and I don't know. Mm-hmm. Now, Chain and Flory were a lot better at that side of the project, so after their clinical trial, they petitioned the British government and private business to investigate mass-producing penicillin. They were like, let's go. You know, it's World War, it's World War II now. And it was 1941. And so they're going around to the British government, all these private businesses, but the the blitz is happening, right? Where they're just bombing the absolute crap out of the UK. So, like, everyone's like, well, I just, they just don't have the resources. They don't have the facilities right now because of that. And so, um, Chain actually came to the UK from Germany as a refugee due to his Jewish heritage. So I think especially Chain really felt like this was his way of contributing to the war effort. So he actually, him and um, Flory actually went to um, the U.S. in June of 1941 to persuade the U.S. Com- uh, government and pharmaceutical companies to make penicillin. Because um, basically everyone in the U.K. said, we can't. Um, the the legend is that they put the mold samples, uh, instead of like just putting them into vials and like taking the vials, they lined, like they took their suits and like put it in the pockets of their suits and like let it grow oh, wow. in the pockets of their suits because they thought the vials would be lost. So they would just like smear their coats in mold. <laughs> Fantastic beast style. The <laughs> Newt Salamander, what his name is that? That does seem like something Newt <laughs> right. Salamander. I have would it right do. here. <laughs> Penicillin, you say? <laughs> Find my pocket. Scamander. Yes. Scamander. Yeah. Scamander. We're bad. That's a better name. Would I call him Salamander? <laughs> to be fair, he is a salamander. He's yeah, got salamander very vibes. Very close. Yeah. He's got that tongue. You know, he's got a slippery guy. <laughs> but you know, that was written by J.K. Rowling, so we don't promote that here. Yeah. Oh yeah. We can we can mispronounce her characters' names. <laughs> But Newt Commander, it does seem like a good person. So, but he's a random character. He's not real. It doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's nothing to do with penicillin. It's just, I just want to imagine them coming in, just all you know, disarrayed, way too big coats that they wore back then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, well, in the forties, they were actually slimmed down a lot because, like, it was oh, like the still, yeah. in the forties, yeah, because there was like a, I think it was in the 40s there was a whole uh the zoot suit riot oh i remember yeah yeah Yeah, i learned about that in my college (laughs) history class and so like the patriotic thing in the 40s was to wear very slim very tight fitting suits because it saved the fabric for the war effort right Uh, so all the fabric was going to the war effort and then a lot of people of color especially like hispanic and black men would wear these big billowy suits as like a, a a protest and like as a as a resistance and so there was a whole riot i think it was in san francisco it was in california it was west coast i think it was san francisco i could be wrong on that one i think that was the opening of a movie <laughs> uh, i don't know what it was uh, it might have been be um there's a song called zoot suit riot yeah i've heard that uh 
I think that's all I can think of. The Zoot Suit Riot. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what that was about. It was it was about um, people of color wearing two big suits and um, white people being angry about it. Mm. Yeah, it was one of the worst riots. And in... anyway, it's very. We're gonna go back to penicillin. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> Sorry, that got depressing. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so they went to the U.S. government and pharmaceutical companies and lined their pockets with uh, mold. Um, they eventually arrive in Peoria, Illinois, which, you know, it's never... It's a weird landing spot. For... Yeah. Well, I'm sure they didn't land there, but that's yeah. where they ended up. Um, and they met Charles Thorne, um, who was a mycologist at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, um, and Andrew Jackson Moyer. Um, director of the department's uh, North Region Research Laboratory. Thorne um, identified Fleming's mold to be P. Uh, Natutum. Um, Thorne also recognized the rarity of the strain because only one other strain in his collection of a thousand penicillins. So, like, you know, penicillin is the genus, mm-hmm. uh, Natutum is the um, species, right? So he has a thousand other species of penicillin and only two in the a thousand makes penicillin the, you know, the drug. Mm-hmm. But they also realized that Fleming's mold was not efficient enough to produce large quantities of penicillin, right? So like the mold itself, mold is really hard to grow. Yeah. Uh, it's a, I think it's, uh, it's limited too by like the resources around it. So I guess, uh, what, what did he started on? I forgot what it was like some food that, uh, he originally started growing the mold on, and mm-hmm. I guess it would take like a, it waste a lot of food to build it his way, you know, from where he started. So it makes yeah. sense that someone should figure out a better way to, you know, start synthesizing it using less, you know, mm-hmm. um, resources and everything. So. Yeah. So part of the problem with uh, with these strains of penicillin is that or penicillum um, is that they um, they're surface growers, so they need like a flat surface. So like if you had like a tank of water, mm-hmm. right? They're not going to grow. They only grow on the surface of the water, um, and we'll get into that more because it's uh, on how they did that. But um, that that's part of the problem is that how they grow. So they the first thing they wanted to do was find more efficient molds that would produce penicillin. So they were they basically put on like an all points bulletin for any blue green mold. You saw blue green mold, you were supposed to send it into the government. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> like like everywhere. So they they had like they even um, teamed up with the uh, U.S. Army Transport Command to search for mold around the world. So they found mold in China. Um, in India, they found mold in Cape Town, and they were all shipping it back to Peoria, Illinois, to be tested to see if it made penicillin. But the best sample was from a cantaloupe that was sold in the Peoria, Illinois fruit market in 1943. Wow! <laughs> so some lady brought, literally took this, took this fruit and you know, walked grown, it over yeah. <laughs> to this national lab and was like. Here you go. I found a moldy cantaloupe. You want mold, right? Farmer's markets are great. You know? <laughs> <laughs> can get anything you need. Oh, penicillin right here. <laughs> Why didn't you say so? <laughs> um, and there's a really, the, the like popular story is that someone named Mary Kay Hunt or in some versions, Mary Hunt Stevens, who was a staff member um, at the lab, collected the mold um, for which she, and then she was called Moldy Mary. <laughs> oh, nice. It's better than typhoid, Mary, but yeah, not by much. Not by much, yeah. I would not want want that. Um, Wow. (laughs) But uh, apparently people that uh, 
remarked the story it said that that's not true but that the fruit was delivered to the lab by a woman from the fruit market and i'm like okay but was that woman's name mary yeah i don't understand how that was folklore if a woman delivered it from the farmer's market but maybe it was that she wasn't actually on staff at the lab because like the the story is that she was on staff maybe she wasn't on staff i don't know but i was like so a woman delivered this fruit to your lab right and that yeah. seems to be true, but was her name Mary? Maybe not. I don't know. Wow. But I'm I believe that a woman took a fruit to this lab, <laughs> took a cantaloupe to the lab, but and they were like, "That's not true." And it's like, "Okay, but where'd you get the cantaloupe? Oh, a lady delivered it." Then who's Moldy Mary? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just this like, is a mystery. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know where they got the cantaloupe from, <laughs> but they found a cantaloupe. Um. But yeah, so like I was saying, like the biggest issue with mass production is growing the mold. So penicillin only grows well on surface cultures. Um, and so the first vessel they tried were um, old-style bedpans. <laughs> so they put... They took these old bedpans. They had a large surface area. Um, they had a lid and a sidearm that they could like take samples in and out. Like, so they could put stuff in and take it out. I don't know why um, a bedpan has a sidearm. That doesn't make sense. I feel like things would be leaking that you yeah. don't want leaking. <laughs> well, hopefully you can control it just for draining or something. This would be the, <laughs> the practical use, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, but by the time they like discovered this bedpan was a good way to do it, um, it had like stopped being made, so they and buy more modern bedpans so like the modern ones didn't work i guess and there were no more old bedpans so they had to move on <laughs> but bedpans that was their first go-to should have gone to the farmer's market they had, a, <laughs> they had all the old school bedpans <laughs> <laughs> gotta go to some thrift stores moldy mary's got a whole closet full <laughs> That's where she's been growing this mold. That's where she was keeping the cantaloupe. Need some more mold. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so then um, you know, news started getting out about the wonder drug, right? Because they're you know, there's this national campaign trying to find mold, so the public now knows about penicillin, and so of course someone started selling home penicillin treatments. Oh. (laughs) Which keep in mind, even the government had not yet figured out how to make. It reliably okay yeah. so these were not good um basically they were sold where the they were like gauze that was soaked in the nutrient broth so the broth that they were you know feeding the mold to keep it alive so they were soaking the gauze in this nutrient broth it grew mold and then the gauze was applied directly you know the moldy gauze was applied directly to the band to bandage a, a wound mm. yeah <laughs> I can see why they call her Moldy Mary, if that was <laughs> how they were treating it. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Someone was like, some some huckster was like, this is my time to shine. I can just uh, soak uh, gauze and some broth and, and sell it with moldy. I can sell moldy gauze <laughs> and make money. <laughs> but yeah, of course, like the mold, of course, was not actually the right species. Like most of it probably was not the right yeah. species of penicillin. Penicillin. I guess maybe somebody got lucky and got the right one. But yeah, most mold, of course, did not produce penicillin. And so I don't know how many people probably died from that product. I hope not yeah. a lot. Hopefully it wasn't that bad. But, oh. Yeah. But yeah. And so at the same time, though, mold protection method um, was being 
researched. So by two, by or well, by Jasper H. Kane and um, other scientists at Pfizer. So this is actually one of, not the first thing that Pfizer does, but it's one of the things that like makes Pfizer a big company mm-hmm. is its production of penicillin. And so scientists in Brooklyn developed the practical deep tank fermentation method for producing large quantities of pharmaceutical grade penicillin. Um, so before this point, they had like the entirety of the government, the entirety of the world probably had enough penicillin to treat about 10 people at a time, like mm-hmm. at one time. And so production began with a sterile culture of penicillin mold, which was then propagated. They put it into first a three liter flask and then a 200 gallon seed tank. And then they moved into these huge fermentation tanks. And so like they kind of like stepped it up into bigger and bigger containers. Um, and so chief, and then they like started adding more things. So I don't know why, but corn steep liquor, milk, sugar, salt, and minerals were like the thing. I, I don't know why the liquor part. That's the part that I was like, why liquor? Mm-hmm. I could not find out why. I'm not, I'm not like a, I'm not a bacteriologist, but apparently those little, those little penicillins, so penicillins really like, really like their steep corn liquor. Oh, heavy drinkers, huh? <laughs> heavy drinkers. Yep. But yeah, so they grew the mold over two to four days, and then the trickiest, trickiest part was taking the penicillin out of the broth, um, because penicillin, the drug, is like a really, um, they called it a stingy magic bullet. So, I don't know why they called it that. It's kind of mean. I don't know. <laughs> it's uh, like, you're magic, but stingy. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, because only four part, like in the broth, it was four parts drug to 10,000 parts broth. So even they're like really, yeah. like this is the really efficient way of doing it. Mostly broth, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, the extracted material was then purified and then bottled in sterile rooms. Um, and extreme care had to be taken in these last steps to avoid contamination. After the bottles were filled, the penicillin moved through a freezing apparatus. They would freeze it and then vacuum dry it. So you get like the pure dehydrated drug. Mm. And then you'd reconstitute it um, to give it to people later. When production first began, one liter contained less, a yield of less than 1%. So, like, with what they put in, with what they got out, they only got 1% out. But um, by the end of it, in, like, a 1944 or so, um, they got 80 to 90%, which is pretty good. Much better than four per 10,000, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, on March 1st, 1944, Pfizer's penicillin plant opened. It contained 14 7,500 gallon tanks. So really big tanks. Um, soon the company was producing five times more penicillin than they originally estimated. So they thought they could make so much. They could make five times more than they thought. Pfizer was the leading supplier of the drug. Most of the penicillin that went, most of that penicillin actually went ashore with all of the allied forces on D-Day. So they were making it all specifically for D-Day. And so this drug, all oh, that drug wow. that they produced from March 1st to D-Day, which I think was June? I should have wrote that down. I think it's June of 1944. All of that. Oh, yeah. Hmm? D-Day? Yeah. Oh, I should know that one. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Was it June? That sounds right. I'll I'll look it up. (laughs) We're Googling. (laughs) Yeah. June 6, 1944. June 6th. Okay. Yep. But yeah, so like literally all of it was um, sent with with the soldiers on that day. Um, And this was all before they even knew the structure of penicillin. So, like, they still did not know what this was. Like, they're, you know, 
They knew it, what it did, but they didn't know what it was. So the chemical structure of penicillin was first proposed by um, Edward Abraham in 1942. So they proposed it before this, but they didn't, they didn't, couldn't confirm it. Um, and I actually made like a little model to show what penicillin is and why it is kind of a nightmare to figure out what it is. So, because, so first of all, there's two, two things that are really, two major things that are really interesting about this molecule. First of all, the, um, sheer number of like groups that are on here. Like you can see there's nitrogens, there's oxygens, so nitrogens are the blue ones, oxygens are the red ones. You've got a sulfur which is similar to the sulfur drugs. And then the other thing is that it's got this ring system. And the ring system is really the trickiest part and why you can't, it's really hard to synthesize this. So like, we'll, we'll go over like synthesizing it later and how long it takes from this mass production to actually figuring out how to synthesize it like from a chemistry standpoint. But yeah, the biggest part too is this, this little four-membered ring. So there's four or three carbons and a nitrogen in the ring. Um, and this is called a beta-lactam, so it's also got this little oxygen double bond on it. Nature hates a square. <coughs> Nature really hates a square. Does not want to exist. <laughs> you can even see on the structure um, how like strained it is because the little plastic pieces are even like bending and like yeah, trying to break. Yeah, I can tell break. they're not excited about this one. Like, <laughs> Why don't you just be oxygen again? Or... <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> and then like if you pull it apart, you can see there's a whole... Like, this is how they want to sit. Like, they want a whole other atom yeah. in here to, like, make this work. Like, that four-membered ring does not like to exist. It's really strained. So they want the bond angle. The, mo the molecule would love it if its bond angles were 109.5. That's what that's what molecules like to be. Yeah, not not 90 degrees. <laughs> 90 degrees, it, it, it's kind of freaking out. So And then it's got fused rings where they're, sh they're sharing... Um, a wall of their ring, basically, and that's also not super chemically great. <laughs> so it's really difficult to synthesize, and why it was really hard to, like, confirm what it was. So the person that actually confirmed the structure was Dorothy Hodgkins. So she used x-ray crystallography, so our first episode was actually about an x-ray, another woman x-ray crystallographer. A lot of women in the early um, x-ray crystallography world were, were, like, the experts up until... I mean, there were, there were men too, but like a lot of the big ones were women um, in the early 40s and 50s. A lot of the times because like um, x-rays like on the battlefield were also done by women. And so x-rays at all, I don't know, very women-led field, which is pretty cool. Um, and the good thing about Dorothy Hodgkins is she also won the Nobel Prize for this discovery in 1964. So, um, you know, we talked about Rosalind Franklin and her not winning the Nobel Prize, but Dorothy Hodgkins got her credit. Yeah. Um, Much better than old Fleming, so. Well, Fleming yeah. got the Nobel Prize, too. Eventually, yeah, yeah. So, because he wins it in 1945 with yeah, Florian yeah. Chain. And then Florian Chain were basically like, no, you shouldn't share it with us. We, you, don't, you don't deserve it with us. But yeah. And then in 1945, the U.S. Committee on Medical Research and the British Medical Research Council jointly published the, in Science the Journal everything done at the different universities. There's like 39 universities working on this project and, and private uh, pharmaceutical companies, government research departments. Like this is actually a really big product project. I focused on like the ones who actually succeeded, but this was kind of like a Manhattan project, but a little more boring. 
Very moldy. <laughs> a lot of mold, a yeah. lot of uh, moldy cantaloupes, and <laughs> a lot less uh, interesting, a lot less explosions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, but they discovered penis- they made penicillin, and that's pretty great. Um, yeah. And it was, like I said, a, as big a project basically as the Manhattan Project. But after that report came out, um, they talked about all the different forms of penicillin in the report. So all of this was kept like top secret because they didn't want Germany, finding you know, Germany and the Axis powers finding out about it. So this was like a big military project because of all of the military uses that penicillin had and the advantage it really gave. Um, you know, it's one of the things that helped us win World War Two. You know, people kind of give yeah. a lot of credit to the like atomic bomb and whatnot, but like penicillin. Like, without penicillin yeah. on D-Day, I mean, it could have gone a lot different. True, true. You know? So, um, and then um, when it comes to synthetically making it, so most most penicillins even today are semi-synthetic. So they make it by the deep tank method and then al- mm-hmm. alter it to get your amoxicillins and your mm-hmm. other versions. But someone did make um, completely synthetic um, penicillin in 1957, and that was John C. Uh, Sheehan. It was at MIT. I didn't focus a lot on his story. I feel like people might be mad at me about that. <laughs> but his story is a lot about like, oh, I tried yeah. this and it didn't work. Oh, I tried that and it didn't work. Oh, I tried this other thing and it didn't work. And then I was working with this person and this person. And then then I finally got it to work. And then I was in patent battles. And I was like, that doesn't make a really good story. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't read that book either. <laughs> and World um, War II is already over, so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because yeah, he starts working on penicillin synthesis in 1948. So World War II was over, already over. Yeah. There were other people working on it before that. And, like, there was some cool stuff. So he did, he did like, come up with chemical reactions that I still use today, which is really cool. But, like, to the general public, I don't think they care, unfortunately. Because <laughs> nobody knows what DCC is except a chemist. Like, no <laughs> But he was one of the first ones to use DCC to make amid bonds. And during these investigations, developed new methods of synthesizing um, peptides. He developed protecting groups, which are really relevant to chemistry. And then finally, there was a lot of fighting again over patents, like I said. Really, Robert D. Cognahill and um, Andrew J. Moyer were the ones who wanted to patent the method of production for penicillin in 1944. When Fleming learned that, he was furious uh, and he commented, I found penicillin and have given it freely to the benefit of humanity. Why should it become a profit-making monopoly of manufacturers in another country? Yeah, and I wanted to end on that, which I feel like it's a good ending to yeah, talk about that, how, uh, <laughs> like, medicine should be for people. Yeah, that's and less what for its about intention profit. is. Yeah, it's uh, crazy where we're at with the, you know, we have private health care in America and it is just off the rails everybody's been talking mm-hmm. about you know i was at dinner last night at abuelo's and i could hear somebody talking about medicare prices and good rx kind of stuff we're talking about. Like, like i was saying that's what i talk about all day at the pharmacies these mm-hmm. for-profit medications and it's just uh gosh it's, it's hard they're just two i feel like competing ideologies of being like a healthcare provider and trying to help people and then being a business that or a corporation that solely exists to make money you know right. those two things are just seem like uh, they go against each other in nature. I agree. And, yeah. Uh, it's that's, you know, we're having, there's this guy named, do you know who Z dog is? Z dog MD. I don't think so. Yeah, he's a mm-hmm. podcaster guy. He's a doc. He, uh, he's so I'm sure you've heard of burnout, you know, that's mm-hmm. happening to a lot of people. He calls it moral injury, uh, which is mm-hmm. really in- interesting because he thinks it's, uh, 
it, what's happening to people is, you know, we go into healthcare with the intention of helping people. Like I went in cause my brother had schizophrenia. So mm-hmm. I remember we had to go to a Walgreens to get a drug for him that, you know, potentially could have stayed alive if we got it to him in time. And, um, yeah, it's a sad story. But anyways, uh, that was one of the things where I was like, man, that pharmacist, she drove from that Walgreens to, I think another Walgreens got the drug and came back and like got it. And yeah. Um, so I remember that was a, a big thing in my life. I was like, man, I wish I could help people like that. And, right. um, you know, that I really liked that. Um, you know, I had that intention, you know, I was like, man, I, I want to be able to help people like, like Mary did. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when you are working at Walgreens now, uh, which, uh, the situation in pharmacy is insane. Um, just the working conditions. It is hard. There's a Walgreens across the street from where I work and mm-hmm. it is no longer up on the weekends. Uh, yeah. they're closed some days because pharmacists don't want to work there because all you have to do is meet these corporate metrics that are all about staying profitable and doing those things. And oh, really? it so should they're not putting be that, that on the pharmacist too, all on the pharmacist. And they do not allow the pharmacist to staff, which is, so mm. it'd be one thing if they're like, Hey, uh, meet this, do what you need to meet it. They're like, right. Hey, meet this. Here's your staffing. And it's like, I need mm. more. And you're like, too bad. And that's, that's the way it is. That's the nature of the beast right now. And, uh, you know, when I worked at CVS, uh, I kind of drop a little bit about them and they, uh, CVS Walgreens, it's kind of the same animal. Um, right. Pretty much corporate. You know, any corporation uh, pretty much is going to be. And I know uh, before I left, they used to have what's called a pharmacy supervisor. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was in 2017 when I left and went independent. And uh, the pharmacy supervisor was a pharmacist that told the pharmacies what they needed to focus on and do. Right. And it was a little bit like, you know, I, I knew who mine was and I knew he was a pharmacist. I respected him. And I was like, you know, are you sure this is what's good? And what's, he's like, yeah, it's for the patients. We're doing that. And they got rid of that position. So now mm. the person telling the pharmacy is like, this is what you need to do and focus on has never worked in a pharmacy. doesn't have a pharmacy degree. doesn't, didn't take the, uh, pharmacist, you know, code of ethics or, uh, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. And they're not, they're not bound by those ethical codes and, uh, things that, you know, if you act, uh, there's certain things you can lose your license for that have nothing to do with, you know, your job, you know, um, right. stuff like that. So, um, it's very, yeah, he's, he calls it moral injury, um, which I, I thought like was that. really interesting because it's like, oh, I have to meet all these metrics, but, you know, I've got people hurting out here. I need to mm-hmm. go talk to them. I need to counsel them, take care of them. Uh, but I also have to check the stock on this and uh, do these things and uh, meet these metrics, um, which mm-hmm. is like I have to verify so many prescriptions an hour, which it's been proven that verifying too many prescriptions, it doesn't matter where you're at, what your staff is, the volume, the amount of prescriptions, the more you do per hour, the more mistakes are going to happen. And that's just a fact. It's uh, been tested, proven more than once uh, for many, many years. So, you know, these they just completely ignore that data. And these pharmaceutical corporates like CVS and Walgreens, they've got people on the state boards of pharmacies and like all states, Texas included. um, And they're just kind of all in. And that's, you know, it's become, you know, corporate medicine. Right. uh, You know, as an independent, you know pharmacist now and you know being a being a, any pharmacist that works there it's not their fault that's the, it's what the corporation is uh deemed necessary and mm-hmm. uh, it's just it's rough you know the whole the whole situation of it's very tough i know a lot of places have a um you know um I'll call it government medicine or uh mm-hmm. things like that there's a better the single payer healthcare yeah, mm-hmm. yeah and uh those seem to have better results uh yeah. from a lot of the studies i've looked at uh so I feel like when you do that, it's less about profit and it's more about patience. Um, when right. it's just like, you know, there's not a big corporation that's got a, you know, $60 million a year CEO mm-hmm. shouting command. It's, you know, I mean, yes, it's a government, but it's right. its own thing, but it's, uh, it's a little different. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a, 
it's a wild west out there with the mm-hmm. everything that's going on um but it prevents a lot of these problems you've talked about i think too you know mm-hmm. in, tar- in terms yeah. of there's no middlemen anymore right the yes. government is is negotiating directly with the companies mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and that's what's determining the price right yeah. in these systems yeah. you know exactly. which so that gets rid of the middleman problem um that's why the drugs in canada are like oh, i can just get it for 20 dollars. Mm-hmm. it's like yeah because the drug takes it's five cents to make you know yeah uh, it shouldn't be more than that um but in order to get on the formularies and sell it in america uh you've got to give up 60 percent of your profit so so that gets it, passed on to the consumer. Yep. It mm-hmm. never, it always falls on the consumer or in some cases now the pharmacy is eating some of it. So mm-hmm. as a consumer, you pay a premium every month and then your insurance pays, right. um, you know, a certain amount and you have deductibles and co-pays and uh, those things, they can change them on a whim and your, your right. thing, the coverage, the formulary that you have is going to change. It could change monthly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, usually it's at least every six months, it's going to change what's covered. So you get on a med that works, they're just going to change it on you. And it's, you know, there's right. nothing you, you can, you can appeal it, you can fight it. And they, gosh, but you know, what, what's the worst part is like at pharmacy, um, let's say you have insurance you come in and i bill for a new drug that's really going to help you that mm-hmm. you and the doctor have talked about you're ready to start hey your insurance wants to know why you're taking this right like okay so shouldn't they be the ones that investigate that no it's gonna fall so when you come to me i'm like well I, i'll fax your doctor some paperwork that the insurance wants right but the insurance does nothing uh to accomplish getting you medicine right. other than finally paying after you or the pharmacy or the doctor put in enough you know hours and calls to to get it to go through so mm-hmm. it's uh I'm rambling, Dylan. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, you're, uh, you're absolutely yeah. right. I mean, that's how it works. Yeah, and, and, and they're the ones that have the most control and uh, profit the most from it, to be uh-huh. honest, because they get the kickbacks from the manufacturers. They are the same companies that determine how much the pharmacy is paid. So I've right. got a Walgreens across the street, which I believe Express Scripts is kind of the big company that owns all of the Walgreens Boots Alliance now. Um, but CVS is the easiest one because it's all named CVS. It's like uh-huh. CVS. Um, uh, care mark and all that. So the company that owns CVS that's down the street from me, my competitor, mm-hmm. um, controls how much I get paid and how much CVS gets paid. And there's no government body that regulates the pharmacy benefit manager um, in Texas. I think they just made one in New York. They're finally doing something about it. But mm-hmm. for years, that's been a whole thing they found in um, Arkansas is where a lot of this happened. They looked into it and um, they found that the CVS on this drug was getting paid $1,500 more than the independent pharmacy from the same insurance on the wow. same thing. Um, and so that's just and, like not fair on their competition even. Yeah. I mean, that's ridiculous because like, you know, we're supposed to have this free market. Yeah. Right? But like all these big corporations are getting all this extra money exactly. and these little co- companies can't compete. It is very difficult to stay in business as an independent pharmacy. And not only that, these are companies that come in and audit me. They can see, you know, I send them the prescription data. I'll tell you... Um, I had this, I can't give like any like HIPAA information, but I had this happened recently. A patient got a medicine that is refrigerated. It's mm-hmm. a new drug for cholesterol. I'm sure. Have you heard of statins or those? Are you familiar with those? So um, statins have a lot of side effects, muscular pain, and things like that. There's a new drug uh, called Repatha that's very good. It's refrigerated, mm-hmm. pretty expensive too. Obviously, all new drugs are. Um, I don't ship that. I, I don't like to. I like people to come in. I'll give them an ice pack to take it home if they came sure. from out of town. Um, and we're good at getting those covered. And this patient, she picked it up from me. And she called me uh, three days later and said, hey, Chris, I just got three more in the mail. And I was like, uh, <laughs> she thought I sent them. Um, mm-hmm. Turns out it was uh, a PBM uh, that sent it. And we don't know where the data came from or anything. And I've been trying to investigate it, but I can't. Like, uh so like her information 
how, when you, how did that happen? Like her information is somewhere and she didn't know about it? Well, so I, when I build mm -hmm. the medical information, like I had the prescription and right. I, I build her insurance plan. It went to the PBM and then yeah. from the PBM, it went to the insurance and then back to the PBM. And then the PBM is the one that ended up paying me. The PBM can take money from the insurance in between there. It's, mm -hmm. they're unregulated. There's no way to check it. Um, aside from that, the PBM also owns their own mail order pharmacy. Um, okay. and their mail order pharmacy, um, basically just sent it to the patient without contacting her without doing anything, just sent it out. Um, that's gotta uh, be so dangerous. Yeah. Right? And like it's a refrigerated else, one. Yeah. So she didn't, you know, or I should say he or she, uh, didn't expect it to come, didn't know what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And, uh, she's, they thought it was me. <laughs> so I was right. like, I didn't, I, I, cause I'm the only one that, you know, I counseled her on it, talked to her and everything. So, you know, um, I understand why, um, and it would make sense that, it would come for me, but no, another company that she'd never talked to just sent her the drug, um, charged her more for it too. And, uh, there's supposed to be a hard stop. Like, uh, I couldn't, when I tried to bill for it, like the next day, mm -hmm. it told me it was like three months too soon. Cause it was filled somewhere else, which is like a common insurance thing. Like they don't. Right. Because they sent yeah. her it in the mail automatically. And mm -hmm. that's crazy. Cause like, and like yeah. you said, it's refrigerated. So mm -hmm. like, especially if she didn't expect it to show up, like mm -hmm. it could go bad sitting, yeah. sitting yeah. in this box There's, on her front porch or wherever it was. And they'll do that with insulins too. But the thing is, we don't know where they got the prescription from. Like, right, because uh, like a doctor was supposed to prescribe that, yeah, and they and didn't it. have the prescription. And I had it here; it wouldn't make sense for it to be anywhere else. Mm -hmm. um, uh, still investigating that, and that's just completely crooked. That they own a pharmacy that's going to profit from selling the drug, right. and they're they have all the information in their own systems, and there's supposedly firewalls set up to prevent this. But it's happening a lot, mm. and uh, you know when I uh, sorry, I'll stop talking soon. But uh, no, uh, I think this is interesting. Uh, so uh, Medicare is a, it's a whole other animal, and it, I think it's terrible because Medicare is super confusing, and it's so mean to make people when they get elderly to try and figure out how Medicare works. Because I, yeah. I, I explain it to them, they're like, "Ah, oh, Chris, I trust you. Just whatever. <laughs> Do mm -hmm. what you can." I was like, "I'm trying," <laughs> you know. But uh, it, it's so hard. You can't force people in their 80s to learn a new insurance scheme. Like, why am I paying this? It said it's this. Like, it said that unless it's this. And then there's right. Always some crazy thing. So I signed a bunch of patients up for Medicare um, through Medicare.gov, mm -hmm. government website. And uh, these were patients that have been at um, my independent for a long time. They're like, hey, we want to make sure we stay here with you guys. Mm -hmm. And uh, we get our, you know, we want a locally owned pharmacy, you know. So I was like, oh, I, you know, we love that. Um, let's pick this plan. Everything about the plan said, you know, we're in network with you. Um, there's going to be no issues. You're going to pick them up at your pharmacy. That was October last year. January rolls around. All these patients get letters in the mail that say, hey, um, you will be penalized unless you fill at our affiliated um, mail order pharmacy. Um, so it's like. So now you um, have to get your drugs mailed. You have to get your drugs mailed. Or else you're penalized. So they use like specific verbiage. So it doesn't say anything about price there, right? It says penalized. Right. Which sounds bad. Penalized is like, yeah, we all played sports or something like that. Yeah, it's, uh, right. You don't, Flag on the yeah, play. <laughs> you don't win by getting a lot of penalties. So, yeah, uh, uh, everyone associates that with something bad. And I, I don't know how they've kind of worked their way around it. But, I mean, those things are – the state of Texas actually passed a law that said that that is illegal for them to send things that say uh, it's going to be a cheaper price somewhere or something like that, or price thing. So they use the word penalized. It's, yeah, they're trying to push everything that's mail order, and they there is so much documentation. You know, um, uh, yeah, I don't think I can say that. Um, but yeah, there's a uh, uh, there's a lot of documentation about mail order prescriptions specifically. Just you know, people deceased and it keeps coming. You know, um, and oh, uh, yeah. other stuff like they just they don't know when to stop. They don't know when to start. Really, this patient just picked one up for me, and then she gets three months more, uh, three days later. 
you know i mean truly crazy and you know what the worst thing was this this really broke my heart she uh we were trying to make a complaint and do all this and, and the patient was actually like you know i'm afraid i may get some backlash from it like from my insurance like right like, for saying something yeah, or, or for yeah. for wanting to look into this i was like gosh man that wow and that's just ah that's just so awful like that man that just kind of breaks her because it's like man uh Cause I'm ready to fight him over. Like, I think it's wrong. And I think uh-huh. anyone that you just explained it to, like I just did, like, it's clearly wrong. And uh, I don't know. I, I, I hate using the word care now because CVS uses the word care. Like everything was, we care, this right. care. And I was like, oh, that's, I don't think you're using that word. I don't know. <laughs> like It's uh, marketing at that point. Yeah. It, you don't uh, it just, uh, care. Yeah. It, it was, it's crazy. It's a, uh, gosh, uh, like, uh, I saw a book where it's like Caronomics, like how the, the economics of caring and stuff. I was mm-hmm. like, that's a weird, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I don't know how much money can I make from caring that just, I don't know. That's it's what it gross. sounds like to Makes me. Like, gross. yeah, it just feels slimy, you know, to be like, I care so much. I don't, mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. It just sounds awful. Like I do. And I, I genuinely like love being a pharmacist. I know why I got into it and I got it for the right reasons. And that's why I, I like doing it. That's why I practice it independent. Cause I'm not, mm-hmm. you know, constrained by like, I have to meet some metric. I mean, there's definitely stuff you have to do to keep a business floating. Um, right. we're, we're owned locally by pharmacists. So it's like, we, uh, yeah. Um, they understand. We all kind of know, um, what's necessary and it's a crazy business plan, but we staff our pharmacy and take care of people. And it seems to be, uh, we're growing. Good. <laughs> I know truly wild that, um, that's who would think that's, I mean, <laughs> revolutionary in pharmacy yeah cvs tried to do a bunch of i did their corporate stuff for a while yeah just, i don't know they're always like they always think they're pushing healthcare, and it literally every time i've looked at it it's always making it worse so when someone mm-hmm. says like we're improving healthcare, it's like i know you're making it worse yeah <laughs> uh, yeah because uh, like when a corporation says that it's a yeah like a, a new and improved m&m it's like well it already tasted good i don't know what <laughs> <laughs> um. So I did hear about one online pharmacy, like uh-huh. started, I think it was like by Mark Ruffalo. Is that right? No, no, no. Mark Cuban. Mark Cuban. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Is that one also a scam? Uh, no. Or is that uh, one better? Because I, I know his, so, he's, his goal was to make it better, but yes. and then there's only so many medications on it right now. So I love the cubes. So I have mixed feelings on this because I absolutely love Mark Cubes. But um, so he's just show you like what, it, so pharmacy billing is very complicated. I'll try and avoid getting into that, but like he's talking about this drug that's like $4,000. He can sell for like 40. Yeah. I was like, I can get the same drug and I can also do it for 40. Nobody is going to come and show like, I just paid 4,000. No one has a receipt for $49,000 from any independent pharmacy for that drug. Okay. Um, if you went there, we would have found a way to get the price down. Nobody Mm -hmm. is just like, uh, at CVS, unfortunately, it's like, I know when I was there, I'd be like, that's the price. <laughs> uh, okay. And that's how I was. Um, they got a coupon. I'll put it on, but I'm not, there was no extra effort. At independent, um, I know every independent in Texas, everywhere is always like, oh, we, we care a lot about price. We want to make sure mm-hmm. you get the medicine and, and uh, we'll do what we can. We work with doctors and stuff to get it down. So I guarantee you nobody had a receipt like I paid 4000 last month and now with Cuban, it's 40 They were probably paying, I don't know, maybe, maybe more than 40 but. Right. Anyways, so what he did, it uh, it's good, but it's stuff that I was like local independents were already doing. So it okay. kind of takes the business from what I'm already doing um, mm-hmm. on those like specific drugs. Like I could already do that, uh, so gotcha. uh, I could have done it locally. Um, or I, I can do it locally, I should say. Um, and it's just like giving you know fair prices, and it, it's great that he has. Uh, it, it's good there, mm-hmm. but it doesn't solve the problem. Is the thing. Right. So anyway, what keeps us doing is great. It's a love, yeah. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it's going to help like a select few patients that need these like 10 drugs that he has on there, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But I guarantee you people weren't like overpaying like that crazy amount at any independent pharmacy. So like independents were already doing what he was doing. He now has his own independent pharmacy that just focuses on 10 drugs. And I mean, it's cool that he's very transparent with his pricing and stuff. And I'd be all for that. Like, uh, the pricing thing's insane. Like there's, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the PBMs have this thing called spread pricing and it's like based on your area and based on the time of year, <laughs> your reimbursement changes Yeah. with no rhyme or reason. So like I'll lose money on one now and then I'll make it. And everybody wants 90 day supplies of stuff. I get it. You want to go to the pharmacy a lot. Um, I lose money on 90 day supplies and I make money on 30 days with, when it's reimbursed on insurance. It's, it's insane. It doesn't, mm-hmm. there's no reason I should make three times the amount if I'm doing three times the amount of this stuff. Right. Right. In my, Man, so I have this thing. So like fraudulent billing, right? So let's mm-hmm. say I was, uh, I build an insurance company for uh, three boxes of medication and I dispensed one. That's fraud. Right. Let's say I build an insurance company for three boxes of medication and they only paid me the amount that covers one. Is that fraud? Right. Right. So it's not fraud when it's the reverse. Yeah. Legally. Yeah. It's but not. It it's like, what's well, your contract? Like, I didn't sign it. I don't know. Um, there's right. companies that have to do that. And the, the contracts are take them or leave them. They're not going to negotiate with an independent on that. It's uh, right. Cause they, they are making plenty they of will, money elsewhere. Yeah. Like we don't need you. Like yeah. they know that they've cornered the market on it. So I, I don't know that, that kind of bothers me. It's like, obviously I do into that, but let's say, I don't know. I've never, I don't ever want to be in this situation, but if I did like bill for, three boxes paid mm-hmm. for one and dispensed one. Like, is that really, <laughs> right. uh, I mean, it, it is fraud <laughs> like by a, a legal definition it is, but like, gosh, I mean, there's gotta be some, someone that can like look at that at a government level and be like, you know what? Something's wrong with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are like, there's appeals you can do, but, um, for like prescription pricing and stuff, it's, it's wild. Um, just what they can get away with because they have, there's no competition pretty much. I mean, right. I, I guess I'm their competition and uh, they control how much I get paid and they own the pharmacy down the street and they force the patients to mail order. So it's like, it's an uphill battle, but um, honestly, like people just really want to go to a pharmacy and a pharmacist that they, mm-hmm. you know, can trust and they know is at least looking out for them. And um, that's, that's our whole kind of business plan is staffing and mm-hmm. taking care of people. And, you know, you know, this is a, um, talking about like pharmacy shortages, like I told you, Walgreens was shutting down more. There was a, yeah. a pharmacist at a CVS, I believe. I can't remember where it was at, but there's a uh, hashtag. She waited is uh, is going around pharmacy, and mm. this pharmacist had like chest pains and things like that. That clearly, any other pharmacist would be like, uh, you need to get to the hospital now. Um, right. And she obviously thought that too. She called her district manager, which again, not a pharmacist, and he told her, "I don't have anyone to replace you. You need to stay there." And she listened, and she died in the pharmacy oh literally God. died behind the counter. Customers had to come. She didn't have any help by herself. The manager wouldn't let her leave. And she, so it's hashtag. She waited. Um, I'm sorry. I don't remember her name, but um, yeah, there's a lot of pharmacists being activists. Pharmacists were generally uh, like as a, as a person, uh, if you'd look it up, that'd be awesome. Like generally pharmacists were more like passives. Uh, we, we tend to go between like the doctor and stuff. We just check to make sure, you know, nobody's going to get hurt by it and look at stuff. We're not like, I don't know. That's just kind of our personalities, you know? Her so. name was Ashley Anderson. Ashley. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, gosh. What, what state was it in? CBS, I don't know if it right? says. Let's see. Uh, yeah. Um, that, that's been the, and that's just truly, truly criminal that that, uh, happened. I mean, on, at a healthcare, like a we care, like I guarantee you the word care was like all over the walls around her <laughs> while she's literally there dying of a, a heart attack with no staff and a district manager that told her you can't leave. I don't have anyone to replace you. Mm-hmm. Like, 
How awful. Uh, yeah. And then, uh, I mean, healthcare workers have recently, I mean, it yeah. just keeps getting worse and worse. It seems kind of all the way around. I mean, there's nurses getting charged for medical yeah. mistakes, like charged with murder for medical mistakes, oh, which awful, like, yeah. I mean, yes, people, people should be held accountable to a certain degree, but they're already losing their licenses with these medical mistakes yeah. a lot of the time. And mm-hmm. like, it is an accident. How can you say it's murder when it's an accident even, you know? Yeah, yeah I thought there had to be like intent. I mean, there's degrees of murder. I don't know. There, there lawyer, are but... degrees of murder. You're right. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but like yeah. this nurse, to me, murder means you intended to hurt this person. Yeah. I think that's like in the definition of murder. Mm-hmm. Homicide, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. But uh, like, I know yeah. Vanderbilt. Murder and there's manslaughter. Right? Then there's manslaughter. manslaughter. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. I manslaughter could. sounds worse, but it's not. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it sounds more descriptive, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but I know, like, basically this. But the thing is, like, this nurse, especially the one I'm thinking of, is the one from Vanderbilt. Yeah. Um, she basically got threw under the bus. Like, she's the only one who seemed to pay any price, even though it was not solely her mistake. Like, there was so much wrong. Like, she had too many patients. She had too many things going on, and kind of ca- the the cause in the end of the day was not really exactly her mistake it was all these other things that made her make the mistake to begin with yeah. you know like she had too many patients she had too much uh, oh it's always that well, man. the hospital isn't gonna take any responsibility yeah it, yeah, exactly. yeah i mean that's why the bus. that's what happened mm-hmm. they just threw her away and that is the nature of the healthcare system so the people with the licenses on the line like myself like i have a license with the state as a pharmacist you know mm-hmm. mine's on the line for these things and if i uh you know, if I'm losing money on prescriptions and I have to do more and more and more to try and make money and I get more and more audits and more and more, you know, get targeted, um, doing, if you're successful, they target you cause they mm. want their, you know, they want that successful business at their pharmacy, right? you know, and they'll do whatever they can to kind of corner the market on it. So it's like, if I have to do more and more and more to stay profitable, like the other ones, I guess kind of have to do, it's like, it just becomes unsafe and it's, uh, mm-hmm. it's inherent in the system. The system has made it unsafe and the people that have, you know, you know, pledged their lives to it, got licensed and, you know, have the most to lose, um, have the least say in how things are run. Um, you know, yeah. there's so much, I mean, I can't speak for like hospitals. I don't work at them very much, but I know, I know a little bit about them and they have a lot of middlemen there, a lot of administration stuff, which hopefully I, I think the intention of it is to, uh, you know, to prevent things like that. And, but I mean, bottom line, if you don't have enough people that, you know, are licensed, you know, nurses, licensed right. doctors, um, pharmacists, you know, it, it's, it doesn't matter how many middlemen you have between them, all that work's going to fall on them because they're the only right. ones that can, you know, safely do that. So, uh, yeah, healthcare system, that's a whole, whole nother thing. Um, penicillin's still pretty cheap though. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so that's good. Um, I'm sure it's off its patent again now. Yes, Regular yeah. penicillin anyway. I think the uh, Pen VK was like the brand. I still see it written sometimes. And then penicillin G, uh, the benzalkonium mm-hmm. one, uh, for the injection. I, 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 man, it's wild. I, there was a kiddo that had that. And I, I got it uh, covered. And um, it was so crazy. This penicillin, this is wild. I probably shouldn't say all that. But it was, it was $1,000 for a box of this penicillin injection. What? And the kid needed one dose. And, uh, I had to buy 10 to dispense one and there's, mm-hmm. I'd never dispense it for that. So like as a, it's a business thing. It's like, I can't spend a thousand dollars to make a hundred. <laughs> uh, right. I didn't, I didn't make a hundred. I think I lost money on the one I did. Um, but we were able to find it somewhere that had it. Thank God. And I mean, gosh, mm-hmm. but you know, if I had to do it, I'd have done it, but, uh, thankfully didn't. Um, so yeah, uh, pharmacists, we're all, 
I know there's a, I talked about like CVS and them, but the pharmacists, they're all good people. Pharmacists in general are, and I know, yeah. I, I know I can, I know a lot of people from CVS. I know I can call them and if they have it, you know, they'll help the patient and they'll call mm-hmm. me too. And you know, we're, we're all trying to help people in our own, you know, from where we're at. So mm-hmm. yeah, thankfully we can call each other and it's not like some weird, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> there's no the fight in the there. Day, it's like, the hey, pharmacist I'm, is trying to help yeah. the patient. Yeah, like, hey, I'm trying to get this for someone. Like, oh yeah, I'll check here. I'll check that. You know, mm-hmm. uh, that that's the nature of farm. When we when we're talking to each other, that's it's always like, oh man, hey, try these guys. They might have it around mm-hmm. them. You know, so um, yeah, I don't know. That's that's kind of how it always. It's nice that you know when you you feel like we're kind of in, in the trenches together. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and I can, I can hear in their voice they're trying to help someone. Like, yeah, I'll, I'll check. Maybe you can try this formulation. I need this formula. Mm-hmm. You know, and yeah, I don't know. Cool. I, I like being a pharmacist, so it's, it's my passion, it's my career. I'm not. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's too late to change, and I wouldn't want to anyway. So. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I probably will get in trouble for this podcast being too political again, but <laughs> not in trouble. Uh, I've just been warned we get too political here. That uh, my yeah. boss is afraid I'm going to get hate mail, um, which I'm like. Mm. Yeah, so just ch- tell you to change your prescriptions. <laughs> 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 but yeah, so are you allowed to say what pharmacy you work at? Because a lot of our listeners are in Lubbock if they want to now go oh, to yeah. an independent uh, pharmacy. Twin Oaks Pharmacy. We've been around since 1955 uh, and we moved across the street in the 90s. But yeah, we're we're still around. Uh, cool. We got some patients that have been with us since we were across the street and uh, oh, it's great talking to them and you know, <laughs> talking about how, how long we've been there. Yeah, I'm at Twin Oaks Pharmacy. We're 34th in Indiana. Kind of, we're in the same shopping center as Holly Hop's ice cream shop. So okay. Mm-hmm. I'll drop that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, I don't mind talking about, I don't think I'm going to get any trouble like more than already. <laughs> I've already voiced these things, uh, kind of more, uh, uh, I called a couple senators and congressmen. I don't think I had to leave voicemails, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, really trying to, Ah oh, man, there, there has to be some change, really just some regulation, you know, like mm-hmm. I, uh, there's a state board of pharmacy and they regulate me and make sure, I mean, their whole purpose is to make sure pharmacy is performed correctly. Right. And unfortunately that has nothing to do with billing and insurance, <laughs> which is the biggest problem in it. So, I mean, they just make sure, um, you know, I have locks on my doors. I, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, my controls are locked up tightly and I have running hot water and my fridge temperatures are checked twice a day, stuff like that, you know, which is important. Um, Mm -hmm. obviously if I wasn't doing that, there should be someone that comes and says like, uh, yeah, uh, are you, are you storing the drugs correctly? Like Mm -hmm. that? Yeah. I'm glad that they, uh, they do that. I wish there was more, I wish they had more, uh, power, um, to, Mm -hmm. to regulate kind of the, that part. But I mean, you know, uh, it's just not there yet. Um, with the regulating the, the reimbursements and stuff. Cause, it's just weird that it should be, but that's just the way healthcare is, is going. It's uh, mm-hmm. kind of, you know, there's their corporations and corporations care about the bottom line uh, as much as they talk about doing that. That corporation is, has a purpose and that purpose is to make money. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and you know, I have a purpose as a pharmacist and that purpose is to help people and to help people take medication safely. And those two purposes don't always align uh, with right. corporations. That's why, like I was saying, I like, I like being independent because you know, um, I can achieve that purpose and, you know, um, like my own, my own way, I'm not bound by, um, my like staffing restraints at the other corporations and where I can order from. I have to, I can order from different, um, vendors and places to find medications that are harder to get and, um, get better ones and find people coupons online to get the prices down, um, stuff like that. So, 
I love it. I love pharmacies. <laughs> Probably why I talked about it way too much. Sorry. About no, <laughs> you're good. Rambling um, here. I did not expect it to go this direction, but I, yeah. I love it. It's a good. It's good to have these conversations. Yeah. Um, do you do you have an online persona that people can follow you or no? <laughs> not really. No. <laughs> Just a lot picture, of our guests. You want to see usually... pictures of my kids? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm Chris Hobart. I'm, I'm on. I don't think I'm not on Facebook right now. I think I have an Insta. I have an Instagram. Uh, there's not a lot happening there, guys. <laughs> you come see me at the pharmacy. I'm there all the time. Uh, today was my day off. I think I was there for like five, six hours, uh, just catching up on stuff, making sure stuff's done right. And, yeah. Well, if you're in Lubbock, go support Twin Twin Oaks Pharmacy. Yeah. Other than that, um, you can it. follow Cowboy Chemistry at Cowboy Chem or at Cowboy Chemistry or at Cowboy Chemistry Podcast, something like that on Instagram, Twitter, <laughs> all the places. Um, I love the name, by the way. It's super cool. Cool. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Um, yeah. And it's been a pleasure having you as a guest and thank talking about it. And do not feel bad about rambling. I <laughs> loved it. I don't know if anybody else loved it. I feel like half the people are going to be like, oh, penicillin talk. And then you're talking yeah. about politics. And they're going to be like, yes, reform the medical yeah. system. <laughs> so we've got a bit for both people yeah. on this episode If you want today. to know why your drug is so expensive, I will tell you. <laughs> <laughs> It'll take me half an hour, but I will tell you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But... We'll put the outro music here. Goodbye. Apoptosis is going mad. My liver's gonna fail. Maybe it's from the radium I use to paint my nails. Well, say you hate me, carbon date me, throw me in the sea. I'll be back with time because I'm made of stardust and chemistry, of stardust and chemistry.